Hi, and welcome to Tejd. Yes, it's a different voice today. It's actually the smiling voice, Barbara Farraher. I'm uh, Mike's wife and the producer slash editor of the podcast. Mike has a bit of laryngitis, so uh, I decided I would do the intro, and you are going to thoroughly enjoy this interview with Mike and Pierce Turner. Here we go. Well, welcome to another edition of Taste, and I am super excited that we have Pierce Turner on the podcast for this week. And Pierce has actually two new recent releases. The first one is Looking Forward, which his album Terrible Good. And then the other one is A Step Backwards, which is Turner and Kerwin of Wexford. And it is an old recording that they have remastered. They have taken it out of the vaults and it is just a it's a hoot to listen to I have to say so welcome Pierce uh, hello Mike good to be here uh, great to have you here and and by the way for those of you that may not be that familiar with Pierce um, <clears throat> I have to say this is one of the greatest live shows you're ever going to want to see because Pierce Pierce doesn't know the meaning of the word stage he, if he's playing in a bar He's going to dance on the bar, he's going to dance on the stage, and he's going to take the music wherever it goes, and it's the most one of the most exhilarating live experiences. Uh, so you definitely want to catch Pierce uh, at either side of the Atlantic when he's uh, on tour. It's it's just really one of the greatest uh, greatest live showmen that uh, I think is 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 working today in our culture. So a um, little plug for your live act there, it's Pierce. Thank you. Man. Thank you. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about the Turner and uh, Wexford. Uh, I'm sorry, Turner, the Turner, Turner, Turner and Kerwood. See, it's such yeah. a <laughs> it's, it's such a tongue twister. Turner and Kerwin of Wexford. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was my idea for a name, which I'm very, uh, which shows my uh, abilities for uh, dealing with commerciality. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so, so tell tell me how this remastered project would come about i can tell you that i'm on some of the social media chats like the celtic crush facebook group etc and this has long been these recordings have long been a treasured rarity and for you to guys to go back into the vaults piece them together take some of these you know odds and sods and then make it into a deluxe edition uh, that's a real time capsule how, how did this come about well um i it, it it came about really, I suppose, uh, by me realizing one day here that you know we were talking about doing a, a compilation of, of the music we do with our, the next entity called the Major Thinkers, which was a kind of a new wave band or whatever. It was signed to Epic Records, but um, it was so much more complicated doing that because we we made a lot of singles. We didn't really have it was much harder to get access to the material because it was owned by Epic Records, basically, too. Um, it dawned on me one day that we, well, what the Turner and Kerwin of Wexford material, uh, we could get hands-on very easily, and uh, it's just there, and it would be easy, to, much easier to do it, and um, it's just as valid, you know, because Larry and I were pretty young, you know, when, when we did this, so uh, it was the early things that we composed, and we 
recorded them very well. They were made in serious recording situations. Um, in seventies, recording studios were probably the the peak of recording in, in the world. You know, that's when things really sounded their best. You know, the studios were at their best and far superior to what we have now, in my opinion, and and, and what we had previous to it even. Um, so. It, they just sounded so good. Um, it was, you know, there's not a lot to gain from it other than that, you know. Well, why should they just disappear into a black hole? And um, um, so that's how it began. And then <clears throat> when you were going through and you were sorting through the material, you know, it's probably like looking at an, I would imagine, I, I don't have this kind of treasure trove in my life, but when you first started to unearth it, what was that like for you? Was it like, I, I would imagine it would be akin to opening up a photo album and looking at what you were doing back in the 70s or or whatever. What was the experience when you first started to delve into this? Well, you know, it, it was a little bit sort of of uh, almost scary idea, really. When, uh, when I was listening to them again, I wasn't sure that I was going to like them. Um, or that they would stand up because sometimes things don't stand up, and um, I was I was very surprised to find that they did stand up. And actually, I should say actually the, the precursor to this was Shindig magazine, an English magazine. Um, I had been contacted by a writer from Shindig magazine about a series that he writes for this beautiful color magazine in England about uh, lost masterpieces or something was the title of it, I can't remember. And uh, he wanted to write about the Turner and Kerwin project. He loved the album, he'd gotten hold of it, he bought it. And um, he wanted, to, so that was really kind of part of the awakening to it. And I thought, well, you know, he the way he looked at it was really interesting because he said, you know, it's not prog rock in the same way that, uh, you know, in, in you know, it although it's kind of a prog rock period, and the pieces are really long. Like our version of the Traveling People is eleven and a half minutes long, um, an old Ewan McCall song, and. Um, it, like that sort of prog rock carry on, you know, like 11 and a half minutes track. But he said, he said the difference between this and prog rock is that it's song based and uh, more folk based than, than the, and there's no signature changes and time changes and drum solos and guitar, you know, there's none of that stuff. It's like at all. So, um, uh, I, you know, that made me think, you know, Jesus, I think he's right. I've listened to it and, I listen to the traveling people and sometimes it sounds like Philip Glass or something, you know. So by accident, we, you know, we didn't really want to become Genesis or anybody like that. Or, you know, maybe we wanted to be sort of a bit like Pink Floyd. But even Pink Floyd, I think, I think stood the test of time far better than the prog rock bands of the time. You know? I would definitely agree with that, Pierce. I mean. I would say that the, you know, traveling people on one side, you know, it's it's a very long song and you have Father Riley says goodbye. But there's almost, you know, in the melodies themselves, it's not, to your point, those big switch ups that you'd see in in prog rock. I think there were it was more, I would say, British folk is what came out for me in terms of yeah. listening to it. And yeah, but then I also you said something and I want to kind of jump on this a little bit, but there was also a lot of 
what I would say at the time was probably very contemporary influences that I could hear as well. I could hear a little bit of Mark Bolin. I could definitely hear Hunky Dory Bowie. I can hear um, Pink Floyd, to your point. So what were you kind of listening to at the time? And was there, obviously, every artist wants to kind of take what they've heard and make it their own, right? So what were some of the things that you were taking from or listening to or inspired by at the time? Well, definitely Bowie was definitely on the list. Uh, uh, and uh, Pink Floyd we were listening to. Uh, Roxy music, yeah. You know? uh, so, mm. you know, which of course, Roxy music were an unusual band in that they were a crossover band. They were like the band that kind of almost introduced new wave. You know, they were they were, they were like right in the middle between two two things. Um, I I saw uh, Roxy music live. At the Palladium, um, and uh, I was blown away by them. And um, we were listening to Bruce Springsteen, English folk rock kind of. There's a kind of an English folk rock sound. I know what you're talking about, and that was a big influence on us too. Um, yeah, like I, uh, I was thinking like Richard Thompson a little bit, and then I was also thinking, you know, even the Stones. Uh, Mick Jagger was recently interviewed by Howard Stern, and he was talking about the influences and. In, you know, you have things like Lady Jane and As Tears Go By, that even yeah. though they were a blues band, there was definitely some things around, Elizabeth, you know, British or Elizabethan or whatever you want to call it. There was definitely things yeah. in, in the Celtic regions that would have informed the Stones as well. So I could even hear a little bit of, of that mist, <laughs> that Celtic mist in the air. And what you were doing as well. Elizabethan is a very good word to describe it, really. Um, and, you know, we were also listening to Horse Lips. We listened to that first Horse Lips album, the one that looked like a concertina. You know, there was some kind of quite spacey stuff about that as well. You know, um, we, we really wanted to take Irish music to somewhere new. Uh, you know, we were very aware of that as well. Um, and then... Uh, what the thing is that like we when we went to America first we were really raw we didn't know anybody we, we didn't have any contacts we're from Wexford Wexford's not a place that emigrated to America like the way Mayo did or Galway or, or the west of Ireland you know? so we didn't have any kind of uh, infrastructure that that embraced us we were outcasts really in the Irish community uh, for a while, you know, we tried to get in, but uh, um, it was hard. And, and then Pete Seeger heard us, uh, you know, Pete Seeger played at the town hall uh, for a benefit. And there was about six Irish bands on the bill and we were probably the least, we, we fit in the least, I would say. And uh, we were on stage doing our sound check and we did the traveling people for the sound check. And Pete Seeger was standing behind me. And then when we were finished playing, and he said, he thought I had made the mini Moog. You know, the mini Moog I was playing, I played a lot of mini Moog on there. And um, I, I developed a sound by putting it through an echoplex and doing things to it. And he had never heard the instrument before. And he thought he thought I'd made it, and I, which I almost... <laughs> I felt very, very tempted to say I did, but I had to tell the truth. <laughs> yeah, you had to tell the truth there. So but then, you know, he took us under his wing then, Pete Seeger, and he brought us around, and, and we, we did a lot of concerts with him. Um, 
it was, so we got encouragement there, but we were definitely trying to, but it took so long. It took like four years or something of being turned down by record companies before we got to make this album. So the album is really over the period of us wanting to be a, a futuristic Irish band to wanting to be Roxy music, you know? So that's why it's like that. That's interesting. That's interesting. And, you know, I think the other thing that's interesting as well is that you could really see the blueprint of the artists both of you would become, right? So if I look at The Girl Next Door, that is a very character-driven song that's short, it's poppy. It almost has a pre-Black 47 thing into it because, you know, Larry's, and of course what he's doing now on Broadway and, and some of the other musicals he's doing, it, it is very character-driven and character-based. And then, you know, I've I've said this behind your back and I've said this to your face, but I think you're the closest thing Ireland has to Brian Wilson. Pop, pop maestro where you... I mean the word offbeat in the best possible way, but there's just such an expansive palette that you use to create a song um, that it it's you can hear that. I can definitely hear that in this as well. And to, and to hear the two of you create and put those two things together as a fan of both of yours for a long time, um, it, this was a kick. I, it was just a hoot to to get it in the mail in a CD, put it in the. <laughs> I haven't put I haven't put a CD in my in my console in the car in in so long. But I can really see the blueprint of the artist you would become and he would become out of that. Do you see that as well? Oh, absolutely! As clear as day. Yeah, there's no question about it. Uh, on Garnick's Store, you can hear. Larry changing his voice too, uh, from you know, um, from let's say absolutely and completely the first song on there which Larry sings, you can hear his very, you can hear him singing like a folk singer really, and then when you hear him singing "Girl Next Door," you can hear him singing more like uh, Brian Ferry or something like that, and um, you can hear him changing into Black 47, really, on Girl Next Door. You can hear the transition coming there. Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. And um, it, it, it's, it's, you know, that's why I say it's the album really is, it, it's over a very long period of time, over a lot of changes, and um, it's extremely eclectic. The album was, you know, everybody thought nothing would happen to the album. I mean, we could, as I said, we could not get signed. Um, but they came out on a small label, but they were together enough to hire a really good publicist. And um, it the, immediately, it was the bill, billboard immediately made it as the album of the week, you know. And though it was a bit of a shock for everybody because we were supposed to do nothing, was supposed to happen to this record at all. And then WNEW just played it off the air. I mean, I'm not kidding. It's just all we just played it constantly. Um, so it was uh, and got really good press and everything. So we were, we were really pleased because, you know, as I said, we've been struggling for so long. Um, but anyway, thank you for that wonderful thing about Brian Wilson. I, I, I love Brian Wilson. That's yeah, you, I've I've always thought. I mean, Three Minute World still to my mind is just one of the top ten albums in the eighteen years I reviewed music for the Irish Voice. That's up there in the top five. So it's just one of those one of my absolute favorite albums, and it's 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 again offbeat, offbeat, and I mean that in 
the best yeah. possible, strongest way. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, and we'll be right back. Taste Season 2 is sponsored by the good folks at Career Letters, careerletters.com. They specialize in professional branding, resume writing, LinkedIn optimization. And what a perfect time to be looking at your career, your resume, your LinkedIn profile. Is it all optimized to find that next career of your dreams? We're heading into the final months of the year. This is the time to be looking for a job now so that you can actually find and land the job of your dreams next year. Visit careerletters.com for more information. All right, and we're back with Pierce Turner, and we want to now spent the first part of the show talking about looking back. Now we want to look right here in the present day. And once again, Pierce has come out with a great new album, a great new collection of songs called Terrible Good. Um, I love Love of Angels. That's my favorite song in the album. And Stephen, uh, tell me what the process of creating Terrible Good was like. Uh, it, it was, uh, it, what happened was really... Uh, I wanted to work with Jerry Leonard. Jerry Leonard uh, is this great Irish guitarist who was David Boy's guitarist for the last six years or something like that. Uh, Co-wrote with Jer uh, him also. And Jerry's from Dublin and has been living in New York for a, a long time. Not quite as long as me, but a long time. And um, uh, I wanted to make an album. So I actually... You mentioned Mark Bowen before. I was doing a kind of a, a memorial concert in City Winery for Mark Bowen. And um, it, Jerry was playing with Suzanne Vega. Uh, we met up again because originally I had met him many years before that. He was mixing my sound and I had no idea he was a guitar player. So when I saw him that night, I said, we'd love to do an album with you. And he said, sure. But... I didn't expect to come back after the pandemic to New York City and get offered a record deal by a new record label called Story Sound. Uh, a real record deal with real budgets and real videos and all the rest of it to be made. And so I went back to Jerry and said, you know, you know, I have the budget to make an album now. Uh, and um, we, that's, how, that's how it began. And uh, so Jerry brought in all these wonderful musicians like Tony Shanahan from Paddy Smith's band. And uh, so I'm, I'm actually, uh, that's so interesting because Shanahan's, their parents are very good friends with my parents. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So that he, he grew up not far from me. That's interesting. Yeah. New Jersey boys. Yeah. New Jersey boy. Milltown. Uh, uh, oh God. It's not Milltown. Yes. Yeah, Mil I think it's Milltown, New Jersey. His, his family had a bakery. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yep. close down. Uh, I believe. Yeah, um, Tony's still working with me. In fact, Tony now is you know he's you know Tony is Patty Smith's musical director as well, and he tours with her a lot. He was just here in Ireland and played with me when he was here in Ireland as well, and uh, he's really been a big help to me to put performances. When I go back to New York, I'm playing at Joe's Pub with Tony. And James Mastro, who is also from New Jersey, he played with the Mata Hoople. And I had uh, the drummer from uh, J.D. Doherty playing with me as well. From So you know, these guys are, uh, anyhow, uh, That's uh, I'm skipping the point. We're back to the album. Um, uh, Jerry and I started rehearsing, and uh, I had a bunch, bunch of songs 
saved up through the pandemic. I was writing uh, the whole time. Um, uh, they were heaping up, and I didn't even know if they were any good. They were all there on my phone. I just keep them on my phone, and uh, um, then all of a sudden I had to dig them up and present them to Jerry. And uh, we came up with uh, an album and uh, went into the studio. Uh, and it was the first album I've made with a, 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 a somebody who was actually a really great guitar player has been my the partner on the album really you know because that's what jerry is you know he's just a superb musician and um uh, who plays guitar and i wanted that because i sort of my albums have been all very keyboard oriented because that's what i play um so i was very happy to have this ace guitar player come up with riffs that are different and uh and that that's and, all over the place there yeah not to cut you off but i think that that was what was most striking for me is that the variety of guitar riffs from stones to acoustic folky things the melodies as a keyboardist as i know you are that was the most striking thing about the album that i i thought it was great and, and you know i jerry leonard i was very familiar with him i'm a huge huge bowie fan i've got a black star t-shirt on right now trust me and uh but i remember watching a documentary about people that played with bowie and jerry leonard he recreated that riff um sunday and how he kind of put that together it was obviously Bowie's riff, but he how he had added the effects onto the riff to make it the sound we know today. Uh, it was fascinating to watch him do that. Um, so I can imagine having that kind of firepower next to your songwriting. It, it's a great result. It really is. I mean, it's like uh, I was perfectly happy, delighted to hand the reins over to Jerry. We were supposed to co-produce, but I said, no, like you, you just produce it because um, it meant like, I suppose it put me in a position of um, I was a little bit sort of unsure of myself sometimes because, you know, I wasn't the boss, you know, and um, I think I wanted that to some degree because as far as I can see, it's really impossible to do something good without a little bit of tension. And uh, so our competition, even, you know, in the studio, um, you know, it's, it's not a big flowery affair where everybody tells each other they're great. You know, it's like tense. Yeah, <laughs> everybody yeah. Wants, wants it to be great. You know, that's the difference. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think obviously that tension works really well with Mick and Keith and Paul and John. And uh, there's something to be said for for that. And it's just as yeah. So it's proven in rock that that tension can really create magic, just like, you know, a Billy Joel or whoever, uh, Bruce Springsteen, well, that, they're, the, they're the boss. Simon and Garfunkel, you know, we, we probably, everyone's seen that documentary, probably Simon and Garfunkel making Bridge Road Trouble Waters or whatever. It's like, a, you know, there's a lot of tension, you know, you know, each one is not, is not sure about the other one. If the yeah. other one likes him or, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I want to go back to something you said, though, because I think this is pretty amazing. For you to have your first proper, you know, like, wow, I have an I have a record deal. I have a budget. I can do this. I can do that. That must have been hugely affirming for you because you have really been going your own way for so long. And I think that's pretty extraordinary that the record industry, given what it is 
evolved into now would step up and and uh, see what all your fans have been seeing for years to be in a position to have a record deal now in your career I, I think that's pretty I would take that to be very affirming I don't know how you felt about it and what a what a great acknowledgement well it's, it is affirming but it's also extraordinary um it, and uh, I actually couldn't believe it because I don't know when something came to me that I didn't have to work for tooth to nail for a long time now and this just was just handed to me and I was like are you kidding me you know, Dick Kinnett, who is the the owner of Story Sound Records, um, I knew I knew him from the in the mid eighties when I used to write music for Modern Dance, and he did too. And um, but I never actually thought he liked what I was doing. I always thought that you know, you know, for some reason or other, we liked each other, but I didn't know if he liked what I was doing or whatever. And when he called me up, he said, "I think I'm not sure if I can help you. You know, come up here. I want to talk to you. You know." I was thinking, he said, I have a label. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, well, I have a label. Mike Farrer has a label. <laughs> <laughs> we all have labels. Ooh, all have have label. label. <laughs> Who gives a shit? You, know, you got yeah, a label. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but then when I get there, he said, well, I'm not sure I can do anything, you know, but I can give you a budget of, you know, like thirty to $40,000 to make the album and I can make videos for you. I can hire a publicist. I have got international distribution and, and he goes on and on like that. And I said, and yeah, no, okay, this, uh, you sounds like you can help me. All right. That's amazing. Wow. That's, so that's... I was stunned, you know, actually. And when I mentioned Jerry Leonard to, to Dick, then he just went, nuts because he loved jerry leonard so you know it it was one of those osmosis situations it just came together in perfection you know yeah uh, and um it, yeah it it, it 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 is a really extraordinary thing and i'm you know really delighted that it happened the re and i love the record and i'm getting great reaction to it it's like when i perform it live now i have to put a band like that together which is quite expensive and and it's not always easy, but then you have extraordinary musicians like Tony Shanahan and James Mastro and you know, J.D. Doherty willing to just do it, you know, and just do it because it's so they love it so much. I mean, you know, J.D., you know, James Mastro said he thinks it's the album of the year, you know, and, and he's a great guitarist. He played with the bongos and the and uh, you know, as I said, uh, the guy from Mata Hoople. His name I can't remember all of a sudden now. Um, but um, yeah, it's so like it, it is interesting what comes from it. Uh, you know, you make a record, you put your heart and soul into it. Do there are people who still believe in music over everything else. That's amazing. Well, I have to tell you that I was in Hoboken. My daughter now lives there and I was there to help her move or whatever I was doing that day. And we're like, oh, like, let's go get lunch. And we went into the festival there and there you are. <laughs> you were playing. I had no oh. idea you were going to be there. And so anyway, I, I got to see the band, what you were doing with the band. And I, unfortunately, I was only able to stay for a couple of songs because I, like I said, I was there for something else. But what a yeah. surprise to walk around the corner and, and there's Pierce Turner and the band sounded great. So tell us um, how we can hear this live. Where, what are your plans uh, in the new well, year? Well, uh, the, the next one, uh, I'll be back in New York uh, in uh, January and the next gig is going to, 
so far right now is March 17th at Joe's Pub. Awesome. Awesome. And how can people get in contact with you? They can get in contact with me through my website, pierceturner.com. So, yeah, my website, uh, uh, com. best way to do it. And also, Joe's Pub is a as you you know is a, is a very very big pub a very cl- big club i should say it's one of the best clubs in new york and uh you can just go online and find and just put in joe's pub and you can get tickets for there that's awesome well yeah. pierce thank you so much for your time i heard claire in the background there so hello claire She's and, gone out. And she's gone out again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had long enough to give my phone number away. <laughs> well, that'll make you a lot easier to find with the groupies, right? But yeah. anyway, <laughs> thank you, Pierce, for the time today. And I will definitely be in the audience for Joe's Pub. So I look forward to seeing you there. Great stuff, Mike. Love me talking to you. All the best. Taste is brought to you through a partnership with irishcentral.com. Thank you so much for listening. Mike will be back next week with another episode of Taste. Listeners, we're breaking new ground here with the first time ever on the Taste podcast. We're welcoming back a guest, and that guest is Larry Kerwin. Now, we know him as just many things, right? Black 47 lead singer. But way back when, he was part of Turner and Kerwin of Wexford. We interviewed Pierce Turner last week about the re-release of their absolutely and completely retrospective. This week, it's Larry Kerwin's turn on Taste. <laughs>